Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink program. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we toast to London Cocktail Week with its co-founders and discover what the world's obsession with Negroni can tell us about our changing taste. We let creativity go wild. We don't put any constraints on what people decide to make. We just ask that they make something that is representative of their venue that they would be really proud to serve. And what we get back is just amazing. Also on the programme, we journey on Ukrainian railroads to understand why this fundamental means of transport also holds a special place in the nation's culinary psyche. Every now and then the train would stop in some little town or village where we would haggle for tomatoes, cucumbers and pumpernickel bread with the sellers on the platform. Plus, we chat to Daniel Seya, the culinary director of the Coconut Club, to find out how he's shaking up Singapore's hallowed classic dishes. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Many cities might contend for the title of global cocktail capital. New York, Paris and Tokyo could all lay a good claim. But London has a feather to its cap as it is home to the biggest cocktail festival in the world. From the 12th to the 22nd of October, London Cocktail Week is encouraging attendees to visit over 200 bars across the UK capital, maybe not all in the same evening, to try special drinks created for the occasion, as well as attending workshops and one-off events. The festival's co-founders Hannah Sherman-Cox and Siobhan Payne came to our studio to reveal what to expect from this year's edition and to reflect on how the cocktail scene has evolved since the event was launched 14 years ago. Cocktail Week started in 2010 and it was actually it was designed what we thought it would be a trade event. We thought it would be a way for all the people in global hospitality to come together and celebrate how great the cocktail culture is here in London. Um, it's increasingly good now, 14 years later. But pretty quickly it became a consumer event. We have some, both Siobhan and I have a PR background before, uh, within drinks, obviously, in hospitality, but within doing this. And so we sent a little press release out year one to the usual London titles, and they all ran it. And so all the tickets went to regular people who just really loved the idea of the self-exploration around the curated best bars in London. Um, and we've just kind of grown and grown from there the actual the basis of the festival is still exactly the same as that it's we curate the best list of bars that we think at that time for that year uh, and work with them one-on-one to create a signature cocktail that's just eight pounds during the festival when we started it was four pounds (laughs) which feels inflation (laughs) although still not that much really I mean it is still terribly cheap but the what's great about what we do is it's not about it's actually not about the discount because the venues that we work with and the caliber of those is so good so for us the idea of creating these signature cocktails with these bars well and they do the creation, we we do the curation, the list as a whole, is to kind of take the price risk away because it's quite a risk. You know, if you don't know you like something, if you don't know you like a certain spirit or a certain flavour, you might not want to spend that much money on a drink. However, what we're offering is the opportunity to taste those drinks at that lower price point and maybe discover something that you didn't know you liked. And a new venue you might not know you liked. I guess the immediate question 
knowing that this has been running for 14 years, is how have you seen the cocktail scene change in London and through London also perhaps globally? Do you think that things have changed a lot in the last 14 years? Yeah, they definitely have changed. Cocktails, they had their second revolution in London in like the late 90s, early 2000s. So by the time we started in 2010, cocktails were pretty well established within the people that drank them. To start with, this was before gin was big. There were, you know, a handful of gin brands. There were certainly no independent small batch gin makers in 2010. So just even to see that flow through where it starts and you think, we'd, we'd say to people, Shiv tells this anecdote really well, but we'd, we'd say to people, it's probably not that you don't like gin, it's maybe that you don't like tonic. And now you just never have that conversation now. We're talking about mezcals, we're talking about really beefy, smoky whiskies, all being mixed into, into cocktails, into mixed drinks. The change has been enormous. The palate generally in London has got more bitter yeah, I think the Negroni has definitely kind of changed people's perspectives, yeah. right? There's been a massive renaissance of the Negroni and suddenly people realised they wanted something that had some right. oomph to it. And actually, if you look back and you question why the Negroni is so big, it actually is probably something to do with the Aperol Spritz, which was a massive drink because you saw it and it was orange and you, you were like, I want to drink that. And actually, an Aperol Spritz does have quite a bitter element to it. It's an acquired taste. So if you look a few years before that kind of Negroni surge, you you can see where Aperol were doing a lot of advertising around the spritz and that, that was a huge drink. And we can see, we can really track that trend of people were like, oh, the Negroni, that's a similar colour, and enjoying that drink. Now we're seeing barrel-aged mezcal Negronis, which is like a whole other ballgame when it comes to flavour and packing a punch with regards to taste. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And we're in such a privileged position to see those trends from way back in 2010 right through to 2023. What about the people who attend? I think one of the things that I've always found interesting is that I think somebody told me who worked in a bar that sometimes men will not order a cocktail if it comes in what they perceive to be not a masculine glass. So it could have the exact same ingredients inside, but if it comes in a little triangular glass, they're not going to order it. But if it comes in a manly tumbler, they will go for it. Is there an association with who likes cocktails, who is allowed to have a cocktail that you think is also shifting, both from the point of view of gender, but also in general accessibility. You know, we were talking about the price point, but there's also just a habit of getting through the doors of a cocktail bar that is not quite like your local bar, perhaps. A hundred percent. And the cocktails for everyone is our secret catchphrase between us, because we just, it's so important that what we do is inclusive. If we as an industry, and we are custodians of our industry in in at this moment as part of cocktail week if we put forward to welcome people in and encourage more people to to taste a mixed drink to taste more unusual spirits liqueurs amaros more 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 if we do that and there's and more people love it that's more people in our industry and our industry needs all the love and all the good people coming through the door. So yeah, we're very we're very careful that what we do is inclusive. We have an enormous non-alc program and have done for years, haven't yeah. we? So to we're, your point about the, the the men and the the glass shape, do you know what? If we'd have had this conversation two years ago, I'd have said hundred percent they like little rocks glasses with a short drink in there. The last 18 months even, and we won't see this on a mass level probably for another couple of years, but it's really changed. 
We were at um, an event the other day, Cocktails in the City, which is another fantastic cocktail event in London. I couldn't believe it. that it, Often at those sort of events, there is a, a stronger female focus and there's there's more women there. But I would say it's, it was majoritively men. Um, yeah, and they, of, they weren't seeming, yeah, like groups of lads. Yeah. Not because they were like, yeah, let's get drunk. It was to taste drinks and they weren't caring about the glassware or anything like that. I really think the last 18 months, two years is really there's something's changed something in the water and I think also I think it's the science maybe of cocktails because there is an art and a science to it to mix the flavors especially once you start putting in barrel aging as we've talked about smoking airs foams you know it's quite a it is quite a complex thing and I think if you've got that kind of brain where you dig kind of unpicking it and working it out I do think it's yeah you don't really care about the glassware then no you don't care no um, but again I think that it's interesting that um how does that reflect on the people who make the cocktails? You know, are we also seeing a wave of female bartenders coming through the ranks? A lot of the time when we think of kind of star bartenders, they might historically have been men. Have you seen a shift in the gender balance there as well? Yeah, there's definitely a shift. There's lots of good work happening within our industry to promote and uplift women in our trade. It's a really lovely thing to see and something we're part of and very proud of on their behalf. Let's talk about the thing itself, uh, the cocktails themselves. I have a programme of Cocktail Week in front of me. It's very enticing. Could you maybe pick out a couple of examples of extraordinary creations that people who attend might be able to sample around London? Yeah, for sure. We're super proud of the list that we curate. Um, It's actually one of the smallest lists we've had for ages, and we did that really deliberately this year. We wanted to make it really meaningful for the bars that were taking part, so they were part of a slightly smaller group over the couple of years of the pandemic, which we did run a live event both years um, by hook or by crook and skin of teeth. That list kind of went up and up as we did. We just had to help as many people out as possible. But this year we're down to 200 and maybe over a quarter of those are hotel bars. There is a really lovely cachet about walking into a really beautiful five-star hotel and just whizzing through to the bar. And again, it comes down to the confidence of being able to do that. So... Yeah, we've got some lovely bars taking part. Blue Bar at the Barclay is a really lovely example. They've they're making some, they're making cocktails that are all riffs on dim sum. It'll Amazing, be, it'll be delicious. They will all be steamed. <laughs> <laughs> They'll all be steamed and yeah. come in a little bamboo basket. We're working with Nobu Bar uh, round in uh, Portman Square again. They're making really, really delicious, intricate drinks with a beautiful product that's made completely with waste. Uh, byproduct it's just really interesting we just we let creativity go wild we don't put any constraints on what people decide to make we just ask that they make something that is representative of their venue that they would be really proud to serve and what we get back is just amazing well let's see if we can turn this studio into a pretty good bar uh, we have the ingredients actually in front of us you've been so as if kind. by magic as if by magic, <laughs> if by magic. Um, you've been so kind even though you're not professional bartenders yourself to kind of lend your expertise and talent to making a cocktail for us today so we we are actually sat next to four wonderful glasses some pretty <laughs> nice looking vermouth and an interesting vodka I have a sense that we might be making something specific what is it that we're making well we As you pointed out, we're not professional bartenders nor bar owners. We're delighted by, on a daily basis, someone asked (laughs) us yesterday, we were like, no, thank you. And so we only make one drink, and that is a vodka martini. 
quite wet with a twist. Perfect for four o'clock in the afternoon, just so we know. Or a three martini lunch, that's also fun. <laughs> um, I'm going to make a racket while I do this, is that fine? I think that's what we need Crack to hear. Okay. Um, so can you walk us through the process? What is, I guess, what is the vermouth that we're going to be using? Shall what is I, the vodka Shall I walk be... it through as you're making so that it's not... Wow, collaborative what a team. What a double <laughs> So the key with any cocktail, and this is certainly home bartending vibes, uh, is just so much ice because the colder the drink is, the better. We like to drink a wet martini, and what that means is that you have more vermouth in it. It's slightly less ABV strong, um, which means you can drink two of them without <laughs> feeling drunk. Um, we're actually one. using a vodka that's launching for London Cocktail Week, which we feel pretty excited by because the packaging is so interesting. It keeps the vodka cold for up to six hours um, is all made from recycled materials and the vodka is called Neft it's Austrian um, so we've not actually made a martini with this one yet we're so all in it together we're all in it together and it's it looks really interesting it, it, um, what about the vermouth that I can see going in right now so we're yeah. using Dolan vermouth French vermouth it's, it's a crowd pleaser vermouth <laughs> um, but any white vermouth will do and it's, it's as easy as that that's so it pour it in and stir it sort of a two, lot with the ice. Two healthy doses of vodka, little bit of a mousse to taste, all in the shaker, and stir. It's a lovely sound. What a lovely sound. And you can tell it's starting to get cold because the outside of the shaker's starting to chill. It's looking like it's doing its job. It's looking like it's doing its job. It's a lovely part of the day, this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, um, what cocktails do you like to drink? Um, I'm partial to ones with a bit of foam, a bit of egg white. Ooh, I'm over club. Yes, and I'm partial to a pisco sour. Oh, lovely! I love, yeah, I love a sour. I love a little bit of egg white. Mm. Um, but I also like an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the night, I think it's a wonderful kind of pudding replacement. Um, yeah, we often have a, a liquid dessert instead of a, yeah instead. Okay, it's going into the glasses. Can you describe the shape of the glasses for us? Yeah, these are called Nick and Nora glasses, named after the the couple that were detectives. It's really silly. But yeah, they're called Nick and Nora's. They're very popular at the moment, like a coupette, basically. Those kind of V martinis don't get used very much anymore, which is sort of probably a bit of a shame. But um... One thing we're seeing in London and the UK is smaller serves of stronger drinks, so kind of mini martini serves. Um, and we started seeing it. A couple of years ago, but now I feel like I often go into a bar and you can order a smaller version of that drink, which is a good thing, actually, because a martini is a very, very strong drink, especially if it's a dry martini. Um, and some for some people, it would be too much to drink a whole one. Um, I'm getting handed my chalice. <laughs> it smells it's fabulous. Martini. Just so lemony and fresh. How nice. Well, cheers to you and thank you so much for coming in. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you for having us. And thank you and looking forward to London Cocktail Week starting on the 12th of October. Us too. Thank you. Mm. It's so nice, isn't it? It actually is really delicious. Next up on the menu, we travel to Ukraine to capture the last rays of the summer sun. With the outbreak of full-scale war in 2022, Ukrainians began to rely even more heavily on the country's railway infrastructure to escape from fighting. 
The service has been praised for its quick response and ability to carry passengers to safety, even in the most difficult circumstances. But the Ukrainian railway has long held a special place in the nation's heart, and with overnight journeys requiring a packed lunch, it has always been closely associated with the country's culinary traditions and quirks. Monocle's Julia Lasica remembers her culinary childhood journeys through Ukraine and asks how the relationship between trains and food has changed since 2022. Growing up in London, I always longed for the holidays when I could return to Ukraine to see my family. Summer meant adventures. Long overnight train journeys across the Ukrainian countryside, trundling over the fields and rivers from the capital down to the beaches in Crimea. In the day, it would be hot in the carriages and we'd laze around eating watermelons from Kherson and cherries from Kyiv, glugging down kvass, a fermented lemonade. In the night, it would grow cooler. Every now and then, the train would stop in some little town or village where we would haggle for tomatoes, cucumbers and pumpernickel bread with the sellers on the platform. Midnight feasts would soon follow, topped off with salt and sunflower oil. Ukrainian chef Yevgen Kropotenko also remembers his childhood train journeys fondly. Moments when you were stopping at some railway station and you had like two minutes, it was like a lot of people who were selling something to your window. And just when you had only two minutes, you cannot, you couldn't allow to yourself just to to come out from the carriage. You have you had to organize something more interesting. And I remember this lemonade in a glass. It's called Citro. It was like very, very tasty. And uh, uh, from the Odessa, I remember when I was buying the uh, the salted uh, salted fish. Like it was uh, something like a small catfish, I don't know, but chalk. It's, uh, it was a, a, a lot, lot of fish you could buy. You could buy a lot of cheboreks. Cheborek, it's uh, the dish which I, will, uh, which I will promote in the Britain very soon, very much. It's something like fish and chips, but with the meat, it's meat and chips. But of course, the reality behind childhood nostalgia isn't always as rosy as we might want it to be. I remember these moments like like something special, but the, in real life it was just the poorness. It's a, not something special, it's just the corruption. Because I was paying, giving the money and I had no, no check for that, so I paid no taxes. And it isn't just corruption that has beset train journeys across Ukraine. Dr. Tetyana Vodotika, IAS fellow at Durham University, Explain to me the sinister beginnings of Ukrainian railways. The main thing in common for railway construction in uh, uh, Empire times and uh, during the Soviet Union was the reasons why they were built and the ways they were built. And of course, uh, economic reasons were not the priority. The first priority was military reasons. Uh, obviously, you know that uh, the construction of railways started in um, in Russian Empire in 40s, 50s, but the first was in after the Crimean War. And the main idea was like, uh, we have to be able to transport our soldiers as fast as best as our opponents do. So the power and, and the very first railway was between two capitals, between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Also, not, not really the economic uh, reason, but, but the power and the military 
that's that's continued obviously during the uh, Soviet periods or Soviet era. Like with almost anything in post-colonial countries, the infrastructure of the railway itself is tied up in the legacy of the empire. It's a matter of power. Who decides what kind of railway Ukraine needs? Who pays for that? And at the end of the day, uh, the connection between Lviv and Kherson, between Lviv and Mariupol, between Kiev and Mariupol, is it easy? No. Even in 21st century, the, the train Kiev-Mariupol was 17 hours or, or, or even more. It's, it's, it's incredibly long. But why? Why the connection between Kyiv and between, for example, uh, Kherson and Lviv is, or Kherson and Chernivtsi, Kherson and Lutsk is so hard? Because it was different parts of empire and no one really thought that it will be, you know, independent state one day and you have to connect the centers of the region. As Dr. Vodotika says, People and their interests were never the priority in either the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. Who cares about the individuals and their experiences when the state holds all the power? But there is a way forward. At the end of the day, this heritage built without considering Ukrainian interests, now it serves Ukraine. Now, I always like bringing up this, uh, this thesis about modern Ukrainian nation. What is it, modern nation? It's not Obviously, it's not Ukraine for Ukrainians. Obviously, it's not Ukrainian as only those who like borscht. Yeah, obviously, Ukrainians are those who understand Ukrainian interests and ready to protect them. And if, if we have to use the heritage of Russian Empire, well, we will use the heritage of Russian Empire, since it serves modern Ukraine. Since the outbreak of Russia's full-scale invasion, Ukrainians have been doing exactly that. The national railway company, Ukrzaliznitsya, has been transformed into a symbol of diplomacy and resilience, as world leaders from Joe Biden to Ursula von der Leyen have been ferried across the country by train. For Klopotenko, developing a menu with Ukrainian railways was a chance to make his own mark in Ukraine's fight for survival. I just uh, understood that... Uh... Uh, a lot of people who is traveling to, to, to Ukraine, uh, first, uh, first uh, ladies, first gentlemen, and uh, prime ministers, and uh, etc. Uh, they traveling through Ukraine for eight hours, and then they um, make a photo with the president, signing some contract, and then eight hours they are traveling back. And uh, I once I was thinking like, okay, what food uh, do they have? I think that it's very nice uh, culinary diplomacy trick to give the Ukrainian uh, cuisine, uh, like very nice high-level cuisine in a train. And uh, one, uh, when uh, there is some places uh, when there is no connection and you're just sitting alone with the food <laughs> in the, your small cabin and that's all. And when you see the Ukrainian borscht or you see Ukrainian national dishes, you start to be uh, uh, more connected to the Ukrainian uh, soul to the Ukrainian nation, to so the food, you can understand a lot of things because the identity of each nation is there. I think that the food is 25%. Maybe this small portion of Ukrainian food can put the wages of, uh, you know, giving the armors to the Ukraine or not. So that's my small, small impact uh, on the future uh, Ukrainian um, victory. For Monaco Radio, I'm Julia Lasica.
Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Tamsin Howard. This week, American coffee juggernaut Starbucks announced it had developed six new varieties of coffee seeds that can withstand the effects of climate change. The new seeds have been cultivated to resist global warming-related diseases and have also been shown to generate a higher yield in a shorter period of time. Experts say these kinds of developments are critical for the future of coffee, which is particularly sensitive to changes in climate. Chocolate is at risk of becoming even more expensive if West Africa's new cocoa harvest ends in disappointment. In the last year, prices of cocoa have soared nearly 50% as a result of fears that bad weather and crop disease could hurt output in the market dominating Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana. African harvests have also been stifled due to higher costs and shortages of fertilisers and pesticides. And finally, the Festival della Castagna, or Chestnut Festival, has begun in the Bregalia Valley of Switzerland. The three-week-long event aims to provide an opportunity for locals and tourists alike to share recipes, anecdotes and stories, all linked to chestnuts and chestnut trees. The sweet chestnut holds particular historical importance as it's used to provide emergency sustenance to the southern Swiss region. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Tamsin. You are with Monocle Radio. After the co-founder of Singapore's Coconut Club passed away in 2019, the Lo and Behold group took over the iconic restaurant, which serves classic regional dishes like nasi lemak and other coconut-infused delicacies. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant met culinary director Daniel Sayer to hear how the Coconut Club is reimagining Singaporean fare and hoping to expand the franchise beyond Singapore's borders, and also to try out the restaurant's fiery sambal prawns. What the Coconut Club was uh, previously is a restaurant that serves singular dish uh, nasi lemak and it's, it's, it was known for, for um, being one of the most expensive nasi lemak in Singapore actually. And I think the reason why we wanted to take over is because the founder has passed away and uh, he started something good and, and we wanted to carry, carry on that legacy. And I think bringing the Singapore cuisine to um, the bigger, broader market, I think that's uh, something that we try to do. How would you define Singapore cuisine? Uh, so Singapore, basically, it's a huge melting pot of different uh, cultures uh, and with different cuisines. Uh, so like Malay, Singapore, uh, Malay, Chinese, Indian, uh, Eurasian, um, and also from the Western colonial times and all that. So across the history of Singapore, I think a lot of uh, the food has been mixed around. Um, and uh, some of the dishes are truly kind of like unique to Singapore. Since Lo and Paul took over Coconut Club, how have you tried to reimagine the classic nasi lemak dish that the old restaurant was doing? I don't think we could do anything else to it. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, nearly perfect um, but I think what we needed to do is to keep up with the consistency uh, on, a, on a daily basis because we're, we're dealing with a lot of fresh ingredients. Could you maybe talk a bit about how Coconut Club is trying to elevate Singapore cuisine because I know a lot of people, you know, hawker stalls and cheaper food comes to mind. Mm. 
Um, so in order to elevate the Singaporean food, we, we look into the ingredients itself, uh, using better uh, quality ingredients. Uh, so say for example, like our chicken, we use a organic chicken. It's uh, the French Gigi Poulet, which is uh, from a French breed. Uh, and we want, uh, instead of uh, getting the cheapest uh, frozen chicken, uh, we use something that's organic, so that basically what you eat is, you, you eat well, basically. Uh, all the different ingredients we try and source for, like, you know, the fresh locally sourced, we try to be as, uh, try to reduce a little bit of the carbon footprint as much as possible, local seafood, sustainable uh, fish in our Ota, things like that. Uh, bringing the, this Singaporean brand overseas. Uh, we are talking to a few potential partners at the moment, but uh, nothing concrete yet. Um, but I think uh, at the same time, we are also looking at a local expansion as well. Uh, okay, so we are going to make a sambal prawn. Uh, that is also one of the favorite uh, accompaniments to the nasi lemak. So it's a sambal is it's a generic term for like sauce. Uh, there is uh, probably like a um, hundred different types of sambal, uh, depending on the usage. Uh, so basically, in this one, it's a quite a relatively easy uh, sambal where it's uh, chilies, uh, a bit of lemongrass, uh, shallots. Uh, and then we use that to cook with a prawn and then we use a little bit of coconut milk to enrich the dish. Okay, so, uh, so what we're doing now is to make the rumpa. So we got some shallots, uh, the red chilli and uh, dried chilli and candle nut. Uh, so the, the red chilli has been soaked. Uh, and just cutting up all the ingredients. And uh, we're going to put this into a mortar and pestle. Uh, we'll start pounding this. Um, we'll try, I mean, when you're doing this at home, uh, the best kind of uh, way to do this is actually with the mortar and pestle. Because um, when you use a blender, basically it just uh, it blends up a little bit too fine. Uh, using a mortar and pesto, you will basically get a texture that's a little bit more coarse. You uh, give it a little bit more texture. Okay, so once this is done, once you heat up the oil, add a little bit of the at a low fire, um, takes a little bit of patience as well for this to cook. We just do a quick, uh, quick frying of the prompt. Just as soon as uh, it changes color, 
then you can add a small amount of the rumba in again. Season this to taste, and then finally you add a little bit of the coconut milk. You can turn off the fire and stir in the, the coconut milk. Naomi Shu Elegant with that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune in to our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Swinging London Town by Girls Aloud. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs> <laughs>